Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast, the podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep or simply take a moment to relax. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating. So sit back, take a deep breath, and let me read you an old story. A not unfair criterion is afforded of the long prevailing and continued misconception as to the origin of chess. By the lack of knowledge regarding early records as to its history exhibited in the literature of the last century and the press and magazine articles of this even to the present year, we refer not to lines of poets such as Pope, Dryden and others, with whom the ancient order of fiction is permissible, or to writers of previous periods, from Abe and Ezra, to Roy Lopez, Chaucer and Lydgate, or Caxton and Barbier, but to presumably studied in special articles, such as those given in dictionaries of arts and sciences, and in encyclopedias, the great work of 1727, dedicated to the king, which claimed to embody a reasonable and fair account, and even the best knowledge on all subjects referred to in it contains an article on chess of some dimensions, which may be well taken as an example of the average ignorance of the knowledge of information existing at the time. The Chinese, it says, claim to date back their acquaintance with chess to a very remote period. So with the best testimonies of that country, which acknowledge its receipt from India in the 6th century, the writer seems to have been quite unacquainted. Nothing occurs in the article as to the transit of chess from India to Persia, next to Arabia and Greece, and by the Saracens into Spain. Neither does a line appear to the Egyptian probabilities, or the nature of the game inscribed on edifices in that country. Though abounding the traditional names of Trojan heroes, and others equally mythical as regards chess, the more genuine ones of Chosroes of Persia, Harun, Mamun, and Matasam of Baghdad, Walid of Cordova, and Carlovingen Charlemagne of France, Canute the Dane, William of Normandy, the English kings, are entirely absent. Nor is there a word concerning Roman games or the edict which refers to them in which chess and draughts, both mentioned, were specifically protected and exempt from the interdictation against other games, which has all escaped all writers, and would certainly, if known about, have been deemed of some significance. The Persian and Arabian periods, from the time of Chosroes to Harun, covers the golden age of Arabian literature, which is more prolific in chess incident than any other. Yet even this, and Fidosi's celebrated Persian Sunama, and Anna Komenier's historical work escapes notice. We may perhaps not implicitly trust or credit all we read in some of the Eastern manuscripts' biographical sketches, but there is much reasonable narrative we need not discredit nor reject. We may feel disposed to accept, with some reservation, the account of the 6,000 male and 6,000 female slaves and the 60,000 horses of Al-Mutasim, the eighth of the Abbasid. The prodigious bridal expenditure, comprising gifts of estates, houses, jewels, horses, 
describing the history of Al-Mamun, the seventh of Abbaside, and the most glorious of his race, may seem fabulous to us, the extraordinary memories of certain scholars narrated in biographies who could recite thousands of verses and hold books by heart may appear worthy of confirmation. The composition of 2,000 manuscripts by one writer and the possession of 40,000 volumes by another may somewhat tax our credulity. We may feel a little surprised to hear that Chosoro's chessmen were worth an amount equivalent to one million of our money in the present day. We may doubt or disagree with the opinions attributed to the Hippocrates or to Galen, that curses were affected or even assisted of such complaints such as diarrhea or erysipelas by the means of chess, or that, as the Persian suggests, it has been found a remedy of beneficial in many ailments from the heartache to the toothache. We may doubt whether the two Lydian brothers, Lido and Tyrrhene, in the story of Herodotus, really diminished the pangs of hunger much by it, but amidst all our incredulity, we can believe and do believe that Chorises and Chess, Harun and Chess, Charlemagne and Chess, Almamun and Chess, Canute and Chess, are as well authenticated and worthy of credit as other more important incidents found in history, notwithstanding the encyclopedists and writers down from the days of the Eastern manuscripts, the Persian Shanama and Anakamena history to the days of Pope and Philidor, and the initiation of Sanskrit knowledge among the learned. Never mention their names in connection with chess, of which the Ravan, king of Lanka, of the Hindu law books, the famous prince and sage, Vyasa of the Sanskrit, and Nala of the poems, and in more modern accounts, Indian king Porus, Alexander the Great, and Aristotle, are far more reasonable names inferently, and if not sufficiently attested, than those cherished by traditionalists, such as Palamedes, Xerxes, Moses, Hermes, or any of the kings of Babylon or their philosophers. Note, the ever-growing popularity of chess is forcibly and abundantly proved in a variety of ways. One conclusive proof of it is afforded by the enormous and ever-increasing sale of chess equipages, boards, men, and figures, diagrams, scoring books, sheets, and more. A somewhat matter-of-fact, it is true, but at the same time practical, reliable, and satisfactory species of evidence. Its progress is further attested by the extreme favour in which chess tournaments, both international and national, are held, at home and abroad, which attract a degree of attention and awaken an interest little dreamt of during any past period of the history of the game. And it is further illustrated by the continued formation of chess clubs in every sphere. The ever-widening interest in the home circle, and by many other facts which indicate the absolute certainty, its highly enhanced appreciation among the thoughtful and intelligent of all classes of the community. The humble and working classes have, in recent years, began to avail themselves very considerably of the enjoyment of the game, and this is a powerful and laudable ground for gratification, 
because chess, besides being innocent, intellectual, and mentally highly invigorating, though soothing also, is essentially inexpensive and does not tend to the sort of excitement too often occasioned by some other games where the temptation, too often indulged, of spending money principally when losing in hopes of obtaining supposed stimulating consolation and nerve, is so frequently manifested that it appears at times to be so irresistible an accompaniment of the game as to become almost a condition and part of the play. Chess, in fact, affords the greatest maximum of enjoyment, with the smallest minimum of expense. It is at the same time the most pleasingly absorbing, yet the most scientific of games. It is also looked upon as the most ancient, and with perhaps the exception of draughts, probably is. The reason why it has been for so many ages, and still is called the Royal Game, is because it came to Europe from Persia, and took its name from Sach or Shah, which in that language signifies king, and Mat dead from the Arabic language making combined Sach Mat, the king is dead, which is the derivation of our checkmate. The degree of intellectual skill that chess admits of has been considered and pronounced so high that Leibniz declared it to be far less a game than a science. Euler, Franklin, Buckle, and others have expressed similar views, and the Egyptians, the Persians, and the Arabians, according to many writers, including Mr. Wharton and the Reverend Mr. Lamb, have also so regarded it. Chess is so ancient, by that distinction alone, it seems taken beyond the category of games altogether, and it has been said that it probably would have perished long ago if it had not been destined to live forever. It affords so much genuine intrinsic interest that it can be played without pecuniary stake, and has been so played more than all other games put together, and continues to be so during the present time on occasions by the very finest players. It exists, flourishes, and gains ground continually and prodigiously, Although the average annual support in amount for first-class chivalrous chess competitions, tournaments and matches in all Great Britain does not equal that put on in former years as the stake of a good prize fight, whilst the recipients of a great football match at Bradford and other important cities, which can be named, exceeds the combined incomes of all the few remaining British chess masters derived from chess instruction and skill in play. Chess is, moreover, surrounded by a host of associations and is suggestive of a pleasant mass of memories, anecdotes, manners and incidents, such as no other game, and hardly any science may presume to boast. And though never yet honoured throughout its long life by any continuous history or consecutive or connected record, its traditions from time immemorial have been of the most illustrious, royal and noble character. More apt at figures than at diction, I have no claim to powers of writing or learning which can afford me any hopes of doing full justice to so important a task as a worthy work on the history of chess would be. My labours and experience, however, 
may have enabled me to gather together materials of a more solid and substantial chest structure than at present exists, and I am not without confidence that competent and skilful workers will be found to construct an edifice more worthy of our day, which present and pending grand developments will still further consolidate in interest and glory. A building in fact cemented by the noblest and most worthy, praiseworthy and commendable associations with which the aspiring and deserving artesian and mechanic of the present and future may be as closely identified as the greatest rulers, deepest thinkers and most accomplished and profound scholars and distinguished men of science of the past affording also a substantial boon, which may be conferred by philanthropists as the less fortunate brethren in society. As it is calculated to induce temperature as well as peaceful and thoughtful habits, a bond of social union also to all who appreciate and care to avail themselves of the relief and advantages which chess is so well known to afford. Over other less innocent, less intellectual, and more expensive, objectional movements. The following notice of chess, shortly after the death of Dr. Zuckertort, add materially to the increasing appreciation of chess among the working classes, and help the good work on. The Weekly Dispatch in June 24th, 1888, said, By the sudden death of Dr. Zuckertort last Wednesday morning, The royal game of chess loses one of its most interesting and brilliant exponents. This distinguished master was only 46, and he has been cut off right in the middle of an interesting tournament at the British Chess Club, in which he stood the best chance of winning the first prize. Amongst his last conversations was his arranging to play Blackburn on Saturday the 23rd and Bird on Monday the 25th. The extreme painfulness of Zuckertort's death to his friends cannot be estimated by the general public. Famous cricketers, famous actors are applauded by those they entertain or amuse. The chess master receives no applause. Over the board, however, he enters into conversation with amateurs and is rewarded by friendships that far outweigh the wildest and ephemeral outbursts of approval. The friendships so formed by Zuckertort have now been snapped, and his removal has caused, in the words of the old player Bird, a severe blank. Bird himself is an interesting character. He is by far the oldest chess master, does the chess correspondence for the Times, and is as well known by his chess books as by his play. The game between him and Zuckertort in the tournament now in progress was looked forward to with immense interest, for he and Zuckertort were the leading scorers, and the fight for the first prize would have been centred in this contest. A good feature in Bird's character is his disposition to make acquaintances with working men. He has taught many of them his charming game, and has frequently been told afterwards that it has been the means of saving them a few shillings every week. This is easily understood for a man that plays chess is not likely to play penny nap, nor drink too much four ale. Such as any rate is Mr. Bird's theory, and he is just now endeavouring to promote a scheme for the popularising of chess amongst the industrial classes. 
Theories as to the Invention of Chess The honour of the invention of chess has been claimed, we are told, by seven countries. China, India, Egypt, Greece, Assyria, Persia and Arabia. Captain Kennedy, in one of his chess sketches, observes, and Mr Staunton, in his Chess Players Chronicle, repeats the statement thus, that this is as many countries as aforetime. There were cities in Greece, each of which, it is said, having peacefully allowed Homer to starve during his lifetime, started up after he died in a fierce convention for the glory of having given him birth. My old friends, Captain Kennedy and Mr. Staunton, no doubt used the word starved figuratively, for neglect by his country. For myself, I really do not know whether Homer was really neglected by his country or not. The traditions of chess are numerous and conflicting. Zakaria Yaha, a writer in the 10th century, in The Delight of the Intelligent in Description of Chess, referring to stories extant and fables respecting its invention to that time, remarks, it is said to have been played by Aristotle, by Yafet bin Nur, Japhet's son of Noah, by Sam ben Nur, by Solomon for the loss of his son, and even by Adam when he grieved for Abel. Aben Ezra, the famous rabbi, interpreter, and expounder of scripture, and who is said to have excelled in every branch of knowledge, attributed the invention of chess to Moses. His celebrated poem on chess, written about 1130 AD, has been translated into nearly all languages of the civilised globe. In English, by Dr Thomas Hyde, in Oxford, 1694. The unknown author of the imperfect MS, presented by Major Price, the eminent Orientalist, to the Asiatic Society, and upon which N. Bland Esquire mainly bases his admirable treatise on Persian chess, 1850, says, Hermes, a Grecian sage, invented chess, and that it was abridged and sent to Persia in the 6th century of our era. The famous Shanama by Ferdowsi, called the Homer of Persia, and other Eastern manuscripts, as well as the MS of the Asiatic Society, give less ancient traditions of the adoption of chess relating to the time of Alexander the Great and Indian kings Fur, Horus, and Cade. In one of these, the reward of a grain of corn, doubled sixty-four times, was stipulated for by the philosopher, and the seeming insignificance of the demand astonished and displeased the king who wished to make a substantial recognition worthy of his greatness and power, and it occasioned sneers and ridicule on the part of the king's treasurer and accountant at Sasser's supposed lack of wisdom and judgment. However, astonishment and chagrin succeeded before they were halfway through their computation, for when the total was arrived at, it was found to exceed all the wealth of the world, and the king knew not which to admire most, the ingenuity of the game itself, or that of the minister's demand. The earliest European work on chess is supposed to be that of Jacobus de Cecilis, a monk of Picardy, which appeared, it is said, in 1290, 
His favorite names are King of Babylon and a philosopher named Xerxes. Massman 1830 gives Ameline, Amelin, and Amelon, and Xerxes, whose Greek name was Philometer, to whom 597 BC has been assigned. Palamedes and Diomedes of Trojan celebrity, the Lydians of Herodotus, the Troth of Plato, and the Hermes of the Asiatic Society philosopher. In fact, nearly every one of the gods who has in turn served as the great mythological divinity has been credited with the discovery of chess. There are few parts of learning so involved in obscurity as the history of pagan idolatry. It may perhaps be some satisfaction to us to think that the ancients themselves knew even less of the matter than we do, but if so, it furnishes a strong argument for the necessity of being very cautious in drawing our conclusions. We believe it may safely be said that there is not one among all the fabled deities of antiquity whom, if the writers of antiquity may be trusted, it is not possible to identify with every other Saturn, Jupiter, Mercury, Pan, Hercules, Peripus, Bucus, Bel, Moloch, Shamos, Taut, Toth, Osiris, Buddha, Vishnu, Siva. All in each of these may be shown to be one and the same person. And whether we suppose this person to have been the son or to have been Adam or Seth, or Enoch, or Noah, or Shem, or Ham, or Japhet, the conclusion will still be the same. Each may be shown was worshipped as the sun, and all of them, wherever their worship was established, were severally considered as the great mythological divinity. So far, it would not appear that there is any room for much difference in opinion, at least not if ancient authorities may be depended on. Dr. Slavic states, on the strength of one of his authorities, and Alexander apparently quite seriously, has repeated the statement that the text in Samuel of Abner and Joab's twelve chosen champions, let the young men now rise and play before us, may be applicable to chess, but the context of the chapter is opposed to any such conclusion. All the foregoing fabulous accounts may be at least declared not proven, if not utterly unworthy, even of the verdict pronounced in those two words. There are three modern traditions or accounts, the first of which is referred to Alexander the Great's time, 336 to 322 BC, and the two others to about the time of Cherosius, 900 years later. Forbes devotes 13 pages to them, and they are given with less detail by the Reverend R. Lamb in 1764 and N. Bland in 1850. The Three Indian Traditions In this, the first Indian tradition referred to the time of Alexander the Great. It is related in the Shanama that a very powerful king of India named Cade Satiated with war and having no enemies without or rebellious subjects within his kingdom, thus addressed the minister Sasa. Day and night my mind is harassed with the thoughts of war and strife. When in the hours of the night sleep overpowers me, 
I dream of nothing but battlefields and conquests, and in the morning, when I awake, I still think over my imaginary combats and victories. Now you are well aware that I have no longer one single enemy, or rebel in my whole dominion with whom to contend. It is utterly repugnant to justice and common sense to go to war without any cause. If I were to do so, God would be displeased with me, and a severe retribution for my evil deeds would soon take over me. Even in this world, for it is not said that a kingdom, governed by falsehood and oppression, is void of stability, and it will soon pass away. Tell me then, O Sasser, for great is thy wisdom, what am I to do in order to regain my peace of mind? and obtain relief from my present state of weariness and disgust. Sasa hereupon bethought himself of a rare game, the invention of an ancient Grecian sage by name of Hermes, which had recently been introduced to India by Alexander and his soldiers, who used to play it at times of leisure. Sasa procured and modified the game and board from 56 pieces and 112 squares to 32 pieces and 64 squares, and explained it to the king, who practised it with both satisfaction and delight. Sasser's stipulation of a reward of a grain of corn doubled again and again 64 times, which was at first deemed ridiculous. The second version is of another highly ambitious and successful king of Hind, named Fur, who died and left a young son inexperienced in war and in danger of losing his possessions. The wise men consulted together, and Sasser, the son of Dahir, brought the chessboard and men to the prince, saying, Here you have an exact image of war which is conducted on principles similar to those which regulate this wonderful game. The same caution in attack and coolness in defence, which you have to exercise here, you will have to put in practice in the battlefield. The prince, with eagerness, availed himself of Sasser's instructions, until he made himself fully acquainted with the principles of the game. He then assembled his army and went forth in full confidence to encounter his enemies, whom he defeated at all points. He then returned home in triumph, and even after he cherished his love for the game of chess, to a knowledge of which he considers himself indebted for the preservation of his honour, his kingdom, and his life. The third account relates... After Belugi reigned Gamur, who had this royal seat in the city of Sandali, in the province of Kachkimir, when he died his brother called May was chosen king, who had two sons, Gav and Talachand. Upon the death of May, their mother Parachera, that is, endued with angelic beauty, reigned. These two young princes, being grown to maturity, desired to know from their mother who of them was to be her successor. The mother concealed her mind, gave them both hopes separately. In the meantime, the brothers quarrel and raise armies, and the mother endeavoured to reconcile them by her good advice. But in vain, for soon after they broke out into open war, 
After various battles, it fell out that Talachand was slain. Upon this, the mother goes to her surviving son and complains to him of these things. Then the wise men of the kingdom sat about to compose the game. Shatranji representing the battle of Gav and Talachand. The sorrowful mother contemplates this game and by daily playing it brings into her mind the battle and death of her son Talachand. She cannot forbear the tournament herself with the remembrance of his death and every day for a long time to give herself up to the meditation thereof. From the early ages of the Christian era, back to the times of Homer, Herodotus, Sophocles, Plato, and Aristotle, traditions concerning the origins of this wonderful game have come down to us of a very various and conflicting character. The Arabian and Persian historians from the commentators on the Quran interdict against lots and images of the days of the Persian Shanama of Fidelsi, Asiatic society's famous manuscript, have spoken of the origin and history of chess. Aben Ezra, the famous rabbi, contemporary of Maimonides, Jacobus the Cecilus of the monk of Picardy, Roy Lopez, the Spanish priest, Damiano, the Portuguese apothecary, Gustavus Selenus, the Duke of Lundberg, Dr. Slavic, Carrara, and the writers of the Italian school, have all contributed to the remarkably delusive and often mythical theories propounded in regards to it. In our own country, we have them from Chaucer, Lydgate, Caxton, Barbary, and the encyclopedists, and the Pope writing just before knowledge of the Sanskrit became imparted among the learned. And ere the classical Sir William Jones had begun to enlighten us, thought probably he had set the matter at rest by declaring that the invention of chess, which we had and could enjoy without caring to know from whence it came, and which was an imperishable monument of the wisdom of its unknown founder, involved a problem which never would be solved. <laughs>